You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, Way, way back in 2013, back when we had an adult president and not a tantrum-throwing, pussy-grabbing toddler-in-chief, I was asked at the Festival of Dangerous Ideas in Sydney to share a dangerous idea of my own that would change the world for the better if implemented, and I responded like this. Uh, population control. There's too many goddamn people on the planet. And I don't know if that's a... You know, I'm, I'm pro-choice. I believe that women should have the right to control their bodies. Sometimes in my darker moments, I'm anti-choice. I think abortion should be mandatory for about 30 years. <laughs> That's a dangerous idea. She wanted a dangerous idea. That's held up as proof by religious conservatives that I am a genocidal maniac who wants to kill all the babies. Obviously, I wasn't being serious. I'm pro-choice, and I framed the thought of mandatory abortions for 30 years as something that comes to me in my darker moments when I despair of and for this world. Calling me a genocidal maniac for that comment is like calling a woman who in a moment of frustration said she wanted to kill her husband a murderer. She didn't really mean it, just as I really didn't mean it, just as Jonathan Swift didn't really mean sell Irish children for their meat. My point was this. There are too many people on the planet. There's not an environmental crisis that we face that can't be traced back to overpopulation. Deforestation, desertification, fossil fuel consumption, water shortages, polluted air, heating up the planet, the Great Pacific Garbage Pass, mass extinction. We talk about these things like they're concurrent but unrelated phenomena, each requiring a unique solution. But each shares the same root cause. There are too many of us. There are too many of us right now, and we're consuming too many of the Earth's resources right now, and we're poisoning the planet in the process right now. Earth has lost half its wildlife in the last 40 years. The wildlife we aren't crowding out, we're roasting out. The wildlife we aren't roasting or crowding out, we're poisoning. And that's with 7.6 billion of us on the planet today, and we're on track to top 11 billion by the end of the century. We're killing everything. We are living right now through and the cause of what's known as the sixth great mass extinction. And it's not just pandas and rhinos and elephants. A 2017 study in Germany found a 75% decline in total insect numbers in protected areas over the last 30 years. Imagine what the decline looks like in unprotected areas. The culprit? The pesticides we spray on crops, golf courses, and our ridiculous front lawns. Insects are at the bottom of every food chain. Kill all the bugs now and we are three quarters of the way there and you kill every living thing on the planet. So what does all of this have to do with your sex and relationship podcast, Mr. Savage? Well, I'm glad you asked. The looming extinction of everything on the planet may not fit neatly into my wheelhouse as they say, but spunk, cum, jizz, man chowder, baby batter, pearl jam, dong water, that does. And according to a terrifying new piece by Daniel Noah Halpern for GQ, headline Sperm Count Zero, sperm counts in the US, Europe, Australia, New Zealand have fallen by more than 50% over the last four decades, and trend lines continue to point down, down, down. Halpern writes, we are producing half the sperm our grandfathers did, we are half as fertile, 
Sperm counts went from 99 million sperm per milliliter of semen in 1973 to 47 million per millimeter in 2011, and the decline has been accelerating. Would 40 more years or fewer bring us all the way to zero? Halpern asks. Looks that way. Halpern speaks with reproductive epidemiologists and spermatologists, which I didn't realize was an actual gig until I read Halpern's piece. I went into the wrong line of work. And all signs point to our grandchildren being half as fertile as we are today. And there are only so many times we can have that number before men are infertile, which means we could soon face a worldwide infertility crisis along the lines of the fictional ones portrayed in Children of Men and Handmaid's Tale. The culprit in this case, the case of all the sperm cells disappearing, those same pollutants were jizzing all over our crops, golf courses and lawns, the fossil fuels we consume, the industrial chemicals we spew into the air and pack into consumer products. Many of these chemicals are what's called endocrine disruptors, chemicals that affect hormones. A man with endocrine disruptors in his system, and they are in everything and consequently everyone, produces less sperm and has lower testosterone levels. If the exposure happens in utero, and it does for all of us now, that man is likely to be born with a shorter penis and smaller testes. You'd think the straight men who run the world would be concerned about this. It's not just lower sperm counts, guys. It's also smaller dicks. Somehow we couldn't see this, well, coming. All the shit we're pumping into the air and water, all the chemicals and pesticides and pollutants that are killing off all the other living things on the planet, they're also making dicks smaller, balls littler, and sperm counts crater. The World Health Organization estimates that 9 million die every year as a direct result of air and water pollution. And just over the horizon, a potential fertility crisis that could lead, according to Halpern and the hair on fire experts he speaks with, to the human race becoming just another species that the human race drove to extinction. Not so good for us, probably though, in the best interest of the planet. The piece is Sperm Count Zero. It is terrifying reading. Daniel Noah Halpern at GQ. Go read it. And in other news, Brett Kavanaugh is a disgusting piece of rapey, perjury shit, and he doesn't belong on the Supreme Court. Coming up on today's show on the micro edition of Savage Lovecast, the for free edition of the Savage Lovecast, tons of your cues, lots of my A, and on the Magnum subscription edition of the Savage Lovecast that you can subscribe to at savagelovecast.com, twice as long and no ads. JP Bramer from Ola Poppy at Them joins us for a second opinion segment. All that coming up on today's show. Hi, Dan, Nancy, and the tech savvy at risk youth. I'm a 20 heteroflexible single female. So once every two or three weeks, I log onto a random chat site and I masturbate with people through my webcam. Um, I never show my face and I feel perfectly comfortable doing this. Now, I am pretty submissive, so I love having people order me around and feeling sort of like somebody's toy. Recently, though, I've been using the tag daddy to match with people. Um, I'm really into fulfilling sort of older men's fantasies. Now, here is my issue. Um, I disclose my age to these men, which is 20 years old, um, and sometimes they will ask me if I'm younger, and I will occasionally, well, play along and say yes. This may lead to dirty talk, where they call me a little girl, call me their princess. If I've shaved, they'll comment on that, and they'll say things like, oh, I'm going to come into your room when mommy's not home. Um, So in my mind, We are totally playing out a fantasy, but I do have concerns over whether I'm tapping into really harmful or dangerous desires that these men have, um, and I can't be sure 
because they're strangers if they are compartmentalizing uh, as well as I am. So I should note that I have, you know, a fully developed body. I have breasts. I have curves. So nobody's sort of fooling themselves into thinking thinking that I'm prepubescent or anything like that. Um, Basically, I'm wondering whether I should be avoiding this type of role play altogether on the internet or whether I should be changing the way I interact with these men um, so that I clearly delineate fantasy from reality. Essentially, um, am I providing an outlet for these men while having, you know, sexy, fun time for myself? Or am I actually enabling and emboldening what I'm afraid might be a pedophilic behavior? In his book, Everybody Lies, Big Data, New Data, and What the Internet Can Tell Us About Who We Really Are, Seth Stevens-Davidowitz, who we had on the podcast to talk about the book and his findings, Seth rolled out some uncomfortable data for us that he wrote about in the book that he found analyzing what Google now knows about our darkest secrets. A shocking number of people visiting mainstream porn sites are looking for portrayals of incest, Seth writes. 16 of the top 100 searches for men are looking for incest-themed videos. The numbers for women around incest searches lower, but still 9 out of every 100 searches by women looking at porn online, looking for incest porn. So this is a relatively common fantasy. It is taboo. It is transgressive. Nobody who doesn't share it wants to hear about it or really think about it much. I have siblings. I have parents. Every time I've had to discuss calmly and professionally incest theme anything with anyone it just you know gives me deeply squicky feelings you're having some of those deeply squicky feelings at least you are after you come you get online you put the hashtag daddy up knowing it's going to attract guys who have this particular interest you are not a child and you don't present or appear to be an adolescent so when you tell them you're 20 and you're busty and curvy and they ask you if you're younger, in a sense, they're asking you to, to play along, to, to, to spin out this fantasy scenario that they have about doing something really fucked up, really transgressive. There is no research out there showing that people who indulge in their taboo, transgressive, transgressive to the point where they can never actually be acted on fantasies, are likelier to act on them IRL, as the kids used to say on the internet, in real life. So again, no evidence that what you're doing indulging these men and yourself, please take some personal responsibility for getting off on this too. Indulging these men and yourself in this kind of fantasy role play is not necessarily, we have no evidence that it's endangering actual children. It is super squicky. No one who doesn't have this fantasy wants to hear about it. And not everyone who has this fantasy wants to act on it. When you talk to people who have incest fantasies, and I have talked to many over the last nearly 30 years, they fantasize about incest sort of as an abstraction. They're not fantasizing about their actual siblings or their actual parents or aunts or uncles or nieces or nephews or cousins. They're fantasizing about this scenario and projecting themselves into it and casting, in a sense, strangers. And it's this casting of strangers that allows them to tap into the abstract incest fantasy. Here's a little something for everyone to Google this morning if you're bored. The Westermark effect. Edvard Westermark wrote a book, The History of Human Marriage, came out in 1891. And his theory was that people raised in, quote, close domestic proximity during the first few years of their lives become desensitized to sexual attraction. Thank you, Wikipedia. That you're not attracted to your siblings because of any sort of genetic hardwiring, but because of the closeness and intimacy 
uh, being near each other during your formative years, growing up, same thing with parents raising their children, that just this Westermark effect intervenes to shut down sexual attraction. And there have been cases where people who are siblings were raised apart, adopted out, and met later in life, and were sexually attracted to each other, had sex with each other, which led to the theory of genetic sexual attraction being a thing. And now people who go off in search of their birth families, adopted adult children, are often warned by social workers to be wary of genetic sexual attraction. Anyway, long tangent, getting back to you and your question, is this okay? No, but well, how can I stop you? How can anyone stop you? And my no is entirely grounded in just squickiness with the concept of, of incest. You're not harming anyone. You're creating more joy and pleasure in the world. You're not upping the chances that any of these men are going to act on these fantasies. You have these fantasies and you have no desire to act on them in real life. And I think it would be fair to assume in the cases of most of the men that you're indulging online in this fantasy role play, that they too have no interest in acting on it in real life. All that said, if I were you, if I were in your shoes and I was online and someone said when I told them I was 20, it's been a long time since I could tell anyone that I was 20, so I can fantasize about that for a second. And they asked me if I was really 20 or I was younger to step out of the role play in that interaction and say to them explicitly, I'm actually 20, but happy to engage in a little age play role play if that's what turns you on and then let them buy back in. So I would encourage you to do that, just to have this moment where you check in with that other person and you just put out there that acting on this fantasy in reality would be wrong. Fantasizing about it with another consenting adult, not wrong. Just like two consenting adults can engage in ravishment or rape fantasy play or master-slave play, not okay for human beings to own each other. A lot of people get off in sex on pretending that that's what they're doing or that's what's being done to them and that's fine so long as it remains a fantasy. So if you take that moment to tag that base and say, hey, willing to play along, this is wrong, right? We both get that this is wrong and nothing either of us would ever, could ever do in real life, then I think that I can give you my blessing, which is kind of what you sought when you called, even if this isn't something that I would want to engage in myself or because it's so taboo and transgressive and in a way for me triggering, not anything I'd want to hear about. Hi, Dan. I have a question about uh, polyamory and children. Uh, I have a five-year-old daughter. And remember once, uh, it was about a year ago, I was out, we were out with one of my partners and she just says to a random stranger, oh, this is daddy's girlfriend, mommy's at home. And the woman wrinkled her nose and wandered off. So she kind of knows what's going on, but doesn't really. I'm obviously very, very careful to phrase things as friends and keep it very appropriate. But I want to kind of, what advice you have about how you discuss these issues with um, little people. There are adults out there, people in their 40s and 50s, even 60s, who were raised by lesbian parents. They were really the first wave of openly queer parents out there, women, lesbians, uh, many of whom were raising children together that were from marriages, opposite sex marriages that they had uh, entered into before they realized they were lesbians and came out. And a lot of these essays that I've read by people who are parented by lesbian couples in the 60s and 70s, talk about the burden of having to keep the secret because their parents couldn't be out. And so their parents shared a house, they were roommates, they were friends, but their parents weren't 
lovers and they certainly weren't spouses outside of the house. And the kids were told, you know, the truth about their mom's relationship, but then also sworn to secrecy so that they wouldn't lose custody, so that they wouldn't, the kids themselves wouldn't be bullied or abused or stigmatized because of their mother's sexuality. And it was just an unavoidable fact of that era, the 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s, and in some places, the right nows. Uh, but it was a burden for those kids. And it's hard to avoid the parallel here. You know, being out to your child about being in a polyamorous relationship places a burden on your child. You know, your child saw that woman wrinkle her nose up too and felt judged and shamed in that moment in ways that she probably doesn't understand. And, and that's perilous for your child. And you have to balance then, you know, what you tell your child versus what you don't tell your child. And even that has risk. You know, if you have a girlfriend and mom's away and your child sees you interacting with your girlfriend in a way that's very clearly intimate, your child, even at five, seven, 10, may think you're cheating on your spouse, on, on your wife, on your, her mother with this other woman and then feels just imperiled because if she tells mom or if mom finds out, then there's going to be a divorce. It's going to be ugly. And she has to keep this secret, help the cheating parent keep the secret to protect her own sense of security, to protect her own home. And that itself is a burden. Everywhere you turn, there's potentially a, a, a burden. And I feel really hypocritical, you know, unpacking this for you because Terry and I are parents. We have a 20 year old son that we adopted at birth 20 years ago. Gay parents are more common now, gay male couples parenting, more common now, not as common then, not unheard of then, but not as common. And DJ was burdened by that in some respects. We couldn't be out about being a gay male couple. And so some of that burden fell to him. He was occasionally given grief by other kids. Thank God we live in a place like Seattle where it never rose to the level of bullying because of who his parents were, but some pushback, some grief he did get. And so I burdened him, we burdened him in a way that I'm advising you not to burden your own child with the fact about your polyamorous relationship and that I recognize the hypocrisy there. I'm just trying to think about the best interests of your kid in this circumstance. And it sounds like at home you're out to your kid, but in the world, your kid being out or unselfconsciously conversational or blabby as so many young kids are about her family could result in more wrinkled noses or worse once your kid gets into grade school or high school. And I think that's the conversation you need to have with your kid. That this is the fact of who we are. A lot of people don't understand this. Kind of like in the 70s or the 60s, those lesbian moms had to have those kinds of conversations with their kids. People don't understand that this is good and healthy and that our love is good and that we are capable and fit parents. You understand it because we're your parents and we love you and you know you're loved and cared for. But outside of these four walls, you're going to have to say that we're roommates, not lovers or spouses because people don't understand. And I think that's the conversation you might have to have with your kid, that our relationship is good and loving and not dishonest and nobody's cheating. But a lot of people don't understand polyamory. People particularly don't understand or don't approve of polyamory when children are present. So you're going to have to be discreet and that's a burden you'll be placing on your daughter's shoulders, but is less of a burden than her blindly going out into the world and telling truths about her family that then she encounters hostility, blowback, condemnation, bullying as a result of not being braced for that. Five seems a little young to have that conversation, but certainly six or seven isn't too young to have that conversation. Going into first grade, 
not too young to have that conversation. This is who we are. This is your family. A lot of people out there don't approve and don't understand. And we're working on that. More people who are poly are coming out, telling their truths. It's going to change. It's going to get better. Just as things have changed for same-sex couples raising kids. But it's going to take time. And in the meantime, you're going to have to think carefully about who you can trust, really trust, when you talk openly about your family. I, uh, I'm a straight cis male. I've been with my wife. Well, I call her my wife. We've been together about 11 years. Um, we've never really been married. We were engaged. We lived together. Um, we got together right out of high school. We're both 29 now. We've always had a great relationship, um, good sex life and everything like that. Throughout the years, we've always kind of had the conversation of having an open relationship. Um, and we've always been kind of open-minded about that and always wanted to be communicative with each other regarding the subject. But it's never really come up. We're both generally happy enough in our relationship that we don't actively pursue other partners. Um, but recently, a girl that I kind of have a crush on, she just kind of gave me her number out of the blue. And that took me for a loop a little bit. And I spoke with my, I, I still call her my wife. I spoke with her about it. We kind of, I kind of set up a date with this girl. My wife was fine with it. Uh, we went out on a date, or I went out on a date with this girl, and it was a good time, and I enjoyed it. Continued to have communication with my wife afterwards about what was going on. But it's seeming like it's maybe she's maybe a little uncomfortable with it, and I know it's kind of natural to have feelings of jealousy and things like that when an open relationship starts to open up like that, but I just want to make sure I'm not taking this too far. Uh, we didn't do anything. We didn't, I haven't had sex with this new girl or anything, but... Um, She's also kind of feeling jealous just because she hasn't been asked on a date, and I have, and um, I just want to make sure that I approach this properly. I enjoyed the date. I'd like to pursue it more and maybe pursue a sexual relationship with this person, but I just don't want to ruin what's going on with my wife. So just any tips I can receive regarding how to approach the situation, I would appreciate it. I want to parse one thing you said before I give you some tips. You say that you've talked over the 11 years that you've been together with your common law wife about opening the relationship potentially at some point, but we are quote, both happy right now. So you haven't actively pursued others. That's a dangerous way. If you're interested in ever opening your relationship of framing, opening up the relationship at a point where we are unhappy, we will open the relationship. That's what you're saying. And you don't want opening up the relationship to mean that you don't want opening up or having an experience with somebody else to symbolize there's a flaw in our relationship or our relationship is collapsing, or we are both miserable and our needs aren't being met. So I'd encourage you to drop that kind of rhetoric. And I don't think it's what you meant, but words have power. And when we say something and when we frame something a certain way, it can come to mean that. We can experience it in that way. And it's possible your wife is experiencing it in this way. If you both discussed opening the relationship over the last 11 years as something that you'll do someday, maybe in the future when you're not happy with each other, your wife is highly likely to be reading into this date. You're not happy with her. There's some problem in your primary relationship. And so you need to touch base with the wife about that. And you need to drop that kind of rhetorical framing of opening up your relationship. It should come from a place of abundance and joy. Sometimes in a relationship, there is a need that can't be met. And a relationship will open for that reason. But that's not about unhappiness. That's just about a fact. Some couples open up because one partner is bi and they want to have a same-sex experience that their other partner cannot provide for them. It's not about unhappiness. It's just about impossibility. Anyway, I shall cease parsing. 
yeah, it's tricky when you first open up a relationship and you need to check in with your long-term partner again and again and again to make sure that they are comfortable. It may not be possible to get her to a place where she is completely 100% comfortable with this. In a way, you are bungee jumping, both of you together, even though you're the one who may be having this experience with somebody else, your relationship, singular, is bungee jumping off a bridge. And that's scary. It is a scary step. And people have fears. And sometimes those fears can only be addressed or resolved after the relationship is open. Like, what will this mean? Will it change how we feel about each other? Will it imperil our relationship? Will it pull us away from each other or bring us closer? Well, those are questions that can only be answered after the relationship is opened. So it's fucking scary. And your wife is legitimately scared. And you need to speak with her. And one way to make her more comfortable is to let her be in charge, that she has absolute control here. And one way to make her more comfortable is to make sure that she knows you're not going to do this without her okay. And you may get that okay without her being 100% comfortable, but you're not going to do it without her buy-in. So you won't pursue this woman or any other woman without her permission. And she can pull the brakes if and when she feels she needs to. And you're going to give her that power because your relationship with her is your first priority. As for the issue of her feeling uncomfortable because you have been pursued now by this other woman and she hasn't been pursued by any other men, that's easily resolved. All she has to do is put herself on Tinder or put herself out there or go out with her girlfriends alone. And men being men, she will be pursued. The question we most often get from opposite sex couples opening up their relationship is she's swimming in dick and he can't find any pussy. So the dick is out there and the guys who would be interested in seeing her are out there and men are more open, it seems, to dating a woman in a relationship than women are open to dating a man in a relationship. So if it's just about evening the scales, it's just about if you're going out on a date with somebody else, I want to go on a date with somebody else too, you guys can make that happen and the internet is here to help you make that happen. One last note, this woman who approached you and gave you her number and you went out on a date with that woman, does she know that you have a person you call your wife at home? Does she know that you are in a committed relationship and you're only interested in sex perhaps on the side right now with others? If she didn't know it by the end of the first date, you need to tell her by at least the end of the third date and before you have any sexual contact with her at all. She has a right to know. Hey Dan, I'm calling with a more family-oriented advice question. My mom is in her early 60s and she's been an avid smoker. She's at least been smoking a pack a day for the last 15 years and has smoked long before that. And at the beginning of this year, she started developing a cough. And my brother, sister, and I all separately told her that we were concerned and that she should go seek medical help. And it's been months and she still hasn't. And we keep dropping hints like I've been sending her podcasts about, you know, certain types of neuroscience and also certain types of drugs that could help stop her from smoking, that she could talk to her doctor about when she goes to the doctor. My sister printed out a huge list of doctors that met my mom's really, you know, meticulous requirements. And yet my mom hasn't done anything and her coughing is still there. And I'm just really worried that it's going to be too late when she goes to the doctor. She's comes from a long lineage of health problems. Her mother and father both died early of 
cancer and a heart attack, and I'm just really worried that she's going to meet the same fate continuing with the lifestyle that she is. And I'm not sure if it's procrastination or anxiety, but I just don't know why she's not going to get help. And we really aren't the kind of family that really confronts each other like this. And I hate to feel in my heart that it's so hard for me to talk to her about this, but it just it's almost as if I'm already mourning her because I know that she's not well and she's not taking the steps to make herself better, you know? And I'm just wondering if you have advice for for me, my brother, and my sister about how we can go about getting her to the goddamn doctor. You can't make an adult woman who hasn't been declared incompetent and made your ward go to the doctor. You can only importune your mother to go to the doctor. This calls for an intervention. Get your siblings together, go see mom, and plead with her. And ask her if there's anything that's preventing her from getting her ass to the doctor that you guys can help with. Is it that she doesn't have transportation? Has she not seen a primary care physician in a million years and doesn't even know where to start? Or how one goes about getting a doctor's appointment? Ask her those things. See what she says. But if in the end, she declines to seek treatment for what may be a very serious problem... There's literally nothing you can do about that, short of going to court and having your mother declared incompetent and gaining power of attorney over her and compelling her to seek treatment. I want to say people have a right to seek or not seek medical care. We live in the United States of America, at least I do, and many of my listeners do, and we do not have a right here to seek medical care, but we have a right to decline it. And if your mother wants to enjoy the last couple of years of her life in declining health with her old friend's cigarettes instead of in an oncology ward seeking treatment and having the cigarettes pried from her hands, that's her choice. And in the end, if the choice is rational and your mother isn't suffering from dementia, you have to let her make her own choices, as stressful or as painful as that can be to watch. Hi, Dan. I am in Dallas-Fort Worth Airport. I just listened to the first episode of your podcast. My sister introduced me. When we were talking about my current relationship, I am not experienced in relationships. I'm 30 years old, but I was raised in an ultra-Orthodox cult family, um, and so talking to women wasn't allowed. I went through many years of sexual confusion, still going through it. My issue now is that I am dating an 18-year-old. She is from a non-religious converted family, but she is semi-religious. She was going to go away for a year of school in a religious school on the East Coast that I know sort of uh, tries to make people more religious than they are. Um, It would be a year away from her. In general, I'm confused about the relationship due to the age gap. I'm 30, she's 18. But she's very mature. Her, her ethnicity is not American, so she's got, you know, a real maturity about her that's sort of different. Um, but I don't know what to do. I don't know if I should stick with this relationship throughout the year and wait, if I should see other people. I feel like I'm just sort of blooming and being comfortable uh, getting close to people and having an intimate relationship. So maybe, you know, I should let this go and see other people. She doesn't want me to do that, but also would understand if that happened. Um, I know she has some growing up to do, so her going away seems like it would be good. I'm just extremely confused. I I seem to care about her more every time she tells me she's going away. 
And then when she said she wasn't going away for the year, I seemed to care about her a little bit less, so it's a little bit confusing. Um, in general, 3018 is more what I'm concerned about. Um, I don't know if I'm crazy or if I'm taking advantage of something or if I'm weak. Um, it doesn't feel like that, but it's sort of the judgments I get from other people. The reason this is my first relationship at 30 years old is because I spent pretty much the last 10 years being in love with someone in an unrequited love situation, and it was a boy. I have thought I was gay for a long time. This is my first time sort of really dealing with my emotional issues, which may have contributed to my sexual confusion. Um, I notice people start their conversations going, you know, I'm X, Y, and Z old, and I am straight, or I am lesbian. I have no idea what I am, but um, I think I love her, and it's confusing because it's hard to tell which part of my confusion is due to my sexual orientation versus due to the abuse I endured as a kid versus due to the religious abuse versus due to, you know, just the age gap. Is it ever okay for a 30-year-old to be in love with an 18-year-old? Is it ever okay for a 30-year-old to be in love with an 18-year-old? Sure. 30-year-old is an adult. An 18-year-old is an adult. There are people out there in loving, committed, healthy relationships where there is a 12-year age gap and some of those people met when one of them was 18 and the other of them was 30. There are people in college at 18, freshmen in college, who wound up meeting and clicking with and dating a grad student or a PhD student who is a decade older. And there have been wonderful short-term relationships that came of those sorts of meetings and wonderful long-term relationships that came of those meetings. But that's not the question to ask. The question isn't, is it ever okay for a 30-year-old to be in love with an 18-year-old? The question is, is this the right thing for you to do? Are you in a place in your life, in your development, where you are mature enough to be in a relationship at all, much less a relationship that faces the challenges that this relationship faces, including the long-distance thing and all of the religious agitas, all the religious bullshit, all the hangups, all the, the, the shame and the stigma that you're both wrestling with and that she seems to be heading off to college to reinforce and make worse if she's going to some bananas Christian college, maybe at the insistence of her family, where they try to make people who are already religious a little, I want to say worse, but there are a lot of religious people out there who listen to this show who aren't terrible and aren't bad. And for some people, religion is a lovely and positive force in their lives. And I want to acknowledge that, but still. It's not her or no one. It, it sounds like you have other options. It sounds like there are other people in your orbit that you've considered dating or are open to dating and are open to dating you. And I would encourage you to say to her, look, neither of us are at a point in our lives where we're ready to commit or ready for anything serious. And so I want you to go off to college and I'm going to do my thing and we're both going to mature and learn and grow. And then we'll see. Maybe dating at 13 and 18, us right now, isn't ideal. Who knows when I'm... 35 and you're 23 or I'm 40 and you're 28, maybe then would be the right time. Or maybe we'll be with other people at that time, but we'll still always remember each other fondly and maybe be able to remain in touch and play a role in each other's lives, even if it isn't the, you know, starring role in each other's lives. And then go figure your shit out, dude. You say that you maybe are confused about your sexual orientation. Whenever anyone says that to me, I look at them and I say, what do you masturbate about? And I can see it in their faces that they know exactly who they are sexually when you put it that way. 
when you stop filtering desire through expectation, through what your family wanted for you or wants for you or what your imaginary sky friend wants for you or you were told your imaginary sky friend or friends wants for you by your family, what are you masturbating about? When you lay in bed in the middle of the night and you're going to crank one out, you're going to have a wank, what unspools in the theater of your mind? Is it dudes? Maybe you're gay. Definitely you're gay. If it's only dudes. Is it women too? Is it women sometimes? Well, maybe you're bi. If it's women only, maybe you're straight. Or definitely you're straight. And I'm not saying or suggesting that because you have this 10-year unrequited crush on a man that you have to be bi or gay. Sometimes, you know, in, in intense situations, we're under a lot of pressure from our families. We, we take our romantic desires and we set them aside. We put them in a place where they cannot be fulfilled. And we have a crush on an inanimate object, a mythical beast, someone we're not capable of loving intimately, romantically, sexually. But we pour all of our sort of emotional, romantic impulses into that person for safekeeping. Like you see that often in young women who have crushes on their best friends because, and they're not bi and they're not lesbians because it's safer than having a crush on a testosterone-soaked dick monster teenage boy. And that can lead to some confusion, that kind of romantic attachment, romantic friendship, or a friendship that's taken on a romantic sort of dimension, tone. It's allowing you to experience in, in a safe way something that may be too dangerous to experience in reality, so you just put it all aside or put it in the, a box. But at the end of the day, dude, you're still reeling from the religious indoctrination, that religious abuse that you suffered, from the abuse abuse that you suffered, from this sexual confusion. You're not in a place, you're not mature enough, you don't know yourself well enough, you're not in good working order. You can't commit to this girl, this 18-year-old girl. You couldn't commit to her if she was 28. You couldn't commit to her if she was 30. If she was 38, you're not in a place. The age difference is not the issue here. The issue here is you, the condition you're in. You don't know yourself well enough to give yourself to someone else, to commit to someone else. So here's what you're going to do. You're going to let her go off to college. You're going to break the fuck up, not out of bitterness or anger. There's no dumping the motherfucker already here because no one's a motherfucker. You just met someone that you clicked with and you need to acknowledge that neither of you are in a place right now in your lives where you could pursue something more serious. And so it's over. That doesn't mean it can't pick up again in the future. And that doesn't mean in the future you won't meet somebody else that you feel as strongly about as you feel right now about her. Sounds like you may have taken refuge in this romantic relationship with the dude for 10 years. Don't make the mistake of turning around now at 30, now that you've partially climbed out from under the mound of bullshit that was heaped up on you by your family, and invest prematurely in this girl. And put it all there instead. Pull way the fuck back, be with yourself, be single, date, and get to know yourself. And finally, I'm going to ask you one more time. What do you think about when you jack off? Hey, Dan. So my girlfriend and I have a decent age gap between us. Now, we've known each other for a while, about four years, and have been together for one year now. Uh, we both share the same idea when it comes to not having children. We do, however, both receive some nagging about this from time to time. Of course, some people hold the mentality that heterosexuality calls for a certain lifestyle of getting married, having children, settle down, and work yourself to death. Frankly, it's bullshit. 
Um, of course, every sexuality runs into their own version of this. Um, I guess uh, my question, I guess, would be, do you have any suggestions for us and anyone else really in this situation on how to cope with it or even to handle it with both like family um, and even like outside sources? I'm trying to empathize, but I'm, I'm actually having a little difficulty emphasizing at this moment. And you even acknowledge that there are people out there, other sexual orientations who encounter worse. I'm one of those people who encountered worse. You're a straight couple. People look at you and they ask, when are you having kids? Which is a shitty thing to say. People shouldn't ask that of straight couples or any couples. There are couples out there who are struggling and have been struggling for years to have kids and then have family that they're not close to, that they're not sharing their struggle with, approach them at an event, a barbecue, a birthday party, a christening, a baby shower and say, hey, why haven't you two had kids yet? That can just really shred someone emotionally who's been struggling and trying for years to have kids. So just as a general rule, folks, everybody listening, please know, don't ask people when they're having kids because you don't know whether they're trying and having a hard time and just in so much pain about it or whether they don't want them. It's none of your fucking business. All that said, caller, what do you do? How do you cope? You just shut it down. You just say, you've only been together a year and people are asking you this now and they just need the people who are asking you just need to hear from you more than once. We're not having kids. Neither of us want to have kids. We've decided together. One of the things that makes us a good pair and one of the reasons we are together is that neither of us want this. And you asking isn't going to fertilize her eggs or change our minds. So stop fucking asking. You can just push back hard. And I don't want to, you know, what about this? And I don't want to play oppression Olympics with you. But the shit that was said to and about me and Terry when we were about to have a kid, when we were going to have a a child, when we were adopting, it wasn't when are you going to have kids? It was why are you having kids? And from some quarters, it was, oh, we know why you're having kids. You're adopting because you want to rape children. I think that's a little worse. That felt a little worse, especially when my kid was old enough to hear people say that about why we adopted, which happened. So yeah, for gay couples, for a lot of us, this script is flipped. Not when are you going to have children, but how dare you or why, or I know why you want to have children and it's for a nefarious purpose. And that sucks. And and what's happening to you sucks too. We're not playing oppression Olympics. We're not going to uh, attach a value or weight to this. But we all have our crosses to bear when it comes to assholes saying rude things or asking impertinent questions about our choices around when and whether to parent. And you should do, caller and other people, what we did when we encountered assholes asking or insinuating assholy things about our decision to parent or not to parent. Shut them the fuck down. Believe it or not, I am not the only advice columnist or sex and relationship advice podcast host out there. That's why every once in a while we invite someone else who has a sex advice column or sex and relationship advice podcast onto the show to tackle a few of your questions. Joining me for this second opinion, John Paul Brammer, staff writer for Condé Nast's LGBTQ Vertical Them, where he writes, in addition to his other writing, a weekly advice column called Ola Papi. The column started on Grinders Into and has since moved over to them. Hey, John Paul, how you doing? I'm doing great today, Dan. How are you? Really good. The first question I have to ask you as a child of the 80s is, uh, were you named for John Paul II, the Pope? I was, in fact, and I think I'm a lot like the Pope. <laughs> in what way? <laughs> I, I, you know, we both love attention, both really love dressing well, robes, big for robes here. You know, I was—I uh, went to the seminary and I thought about becoming a Catholic priest, and then I realized I could 
wear dresses and live in a big house and fuck boys without this whole ordination business. Ah! <laughs> wow, we love topical humor. Perfect. So tell us about Hola Poppy. And am I mispronouncing that terribly in my dumb white person way? No, you know, it, it's a little bit of a gringo accent, but otherwise you're right on the money. Oh, um, Hola Poppy, it, it's an interesting column. So it sort of started out as a content scheme for me <laughs> where I really wanted a weekly column, but I didn't want to go through the trouble of finding something new to write about every week. And then I was like, wait, in an advice column, people supply you with the topic. That's great. And they write and half the column. Good. You know, it's a great exactly like half of it's done for me. That's right. It's a great racket. The grist is real. But then, <laughs> you know, like I started actually getting letters, and I was like, "Wait, these are my children. These are my babies. I have to help them." <laughs> Man, I know that feeling. So, I know that feeling. When, yeah, when Savage like, Love started, it was a joke. I was going to treat straight people with the same contempt and revulsion that advice columnists had traditionally treated <laughs> gay people with and do it for a year and you know, or six months and have it be a joke. But then real questions started coming in from straight people who liked being abused by a gay dude. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's very that. It's just very like, okay, now that I'm here and now that I'm starting to take this job seriously, I might as well start having some fun with it. And you are having fun with it. I, I really enjoy the column and anyone who hasn't checked out them yet should go check it out. There's a lot of great writing there. But I really like about what you're doing with the column and, and I like it because I'm conceited and narcissistic and it kind of looks, it's a little bit like what I've always done with Savage Love, yes. um, is that you really do play with the form. You, you did a recent column where somebody asked you kind of a simple, dumb question and then you were like, all right, you, you gave a brief answer and then you're like, I want to talk about bees and we hear bees are going extinct yeah. and you interviewed a bee expert and you forced all these people who came to your column to you know read about sex and relationships <laughs> to, to think about you know, the environmental crisis and, and the, you know, bees going extinct. And it was just, it yes. was beautiful. It was perfect. It was exactly Thank what an you. advice column should do every once in a while. <laughs> that, that column was definitely a wig reveal. Like there was bees underneath instead of another <laughs> wig. So I, I was very proud of it. Did you grow up reading advice columns? I did actually. So I'm from rural Oklahoma. I'm just a, you know, farm country boy. But I was, I've always imbibed um, gay content. Specifically, one of my favorite writers was um, Michelangelo Signorale. Like, mm. I really, really idolized him. But I've been aware of you, in fact, Mr. Savage, for a very long time. I bet. I've been <laughs> listening for a very long time as well. And it, it's so funny because here we are in conversation. We are colleagues now. Colleagues, peers. And I also grew up, you know, advice columnist to advice columnist, reading advice columns. But I'm so old, I was reading Ann Landers back in the day, Abigail, Dear Abby, <laughs> back when it was written by Dear Abigail Abby. Van Buren, the original, not the daughter, and Xavier Hollander in Penthouse Magazine. They were my uh, real influences, and my mother. So I'm, I, oh, of course, I'm also a big fan of Dear Abby. In fact, when I was pitching Ola Poppy, I said, imagine queer Latino Dear Abby huffing poppers. <laughs> And that, you know, that comes across. I can almost smell the poppers <laughs> when yeah. I open Ola Poppy uh, and read it. Besides writing the advice column, what other kind of writing do you do? What other topics do you cover besides sex and relationships at them? Yeah, so I'm a big essay guy. I like to sort of take whatever the trending topic of the week is and do a little bit of a deep dive into it. So I don't know, I'm more of like a cultural critic. I do some quick news hits as well, but I'm also writing uh, Ola Poppy the book right now, which oh. I'm super excited about. Wow, good. That's great. Yeah, Congratulations. So, and I got my hands full, but it's, it's fun. Yeah, writing an advice column is fun. I hear all the time from people who want to write advice columns of their own and they want advice about 
getting an advice column off the ground. <laughs> what is it that you Meta. said to the editors at them that convinced them, or to the editors originally at Grinder and then them, that convinced mm. them to run your column? You know, it's all such a blur right now, but I do think I remember, I, I was like, you know, it's going to be funny. It's going to be about the trending topics of the week. Like the very first column I got was, am I a racist for being a white guy and only being attracted to brown men? And I think they were like, oh, okay, cool. You can sort of marry the advice column to the daily conversations that are happening online. And I was like, I live online. It'll be great. Well, that's always been true of advice columns. They've always been really married to and, and, and exactly. interacting with whatever the big cultural issues are of the day. The zeitgeist. Yeah, the zeitgeist. It's always playing out in people's relationships. And, you know, whatever the big stories are or, you know, what's in the news or the big cultural conflicts, that impacts people's relationships. That always comes through in an advice column. Like, half my letters right now were like, how do I stop talking to my in-laws who voted for Trump? (laughs) It's easy. You just stop talking. (laughs) You just stop. Exactly. (laughs) Well, here's what I said. For anybody out there uh, interested in getting advice column off the ground, here's what I said that got mine going. Uh, when you see that Q&A format, you can't not read it. Mm-hmm. Whatever publication, online, in print, you see the Q&A and you, you go there, you read it. That's why, have you noticed, uh, John Paul, how many advice columns the New York Times has now? Oh my God, they're springing up all over the place, yeah. Advice columns about work, advice columns about sex, Roxanne Gay writes a terrific occasional advice column for the New York Times. The New York Times is lousy with advice columns. I wish mine was one of them. <laughs> so uh, because we have you, this is called Second Opinion, and usually uh, this mm. show is just me popping off. Uh, but when we see somebody who's doing a great advice column of their own, a great advice podcast of their own, we like to invite them on and throw a couple of the Savage Lovecast uh, listeners' questions to them. And we have two for you that are, I think, right in your wheelhouse, slow and right over the plate, uh, and one that you mm. might not get at them. So here we go. Hi, Dan. I'll try to make this quick. I'm 22 years old, and I'm a gay, cis male. Last year, I met a guy. He's a personal trainer, and we agreed to start working out together. We became friends, and I kind of caught feelings early on. I think he could sense it, but he didn't seem to care. He has a girlfriend, and we've chatted about his past relationships. They're all with women. In the gym, though, he would occasionally smack my ass or say things like, open that pussy up while I was using the leg adduction machine or in a sing-song voice say, suck my dick as he walked into the locker room while it was only me in there. And he's even called me sexy boy once. And I know many people would be repulsed by that kind of talk, but I kind of found it hot. And I know it sounds um, a bit homoerotic, but he's never made any direct moves. So I figured it's just a horny straight guy thing. I even made it clear to him that I was into him and asked while we were driving if he would ever hook up with a guy. And he said, no, that's just not who I am. I accepted his answer and tried my best to move on and just be friends with him. But fast forward to now, he moved away this past summer and we didn't really talk, only a few flirty-ish texts, but he's back in my city and asked me to work out a few nights ago. We went for a run, talked a lot. Then on our way home, he said, wow, I'm giving you a drive and you didn't even give me a hug or a blowjob. And he laughed. So once again, months later, I asked if he's interested in guys. This time he said, yes, after a bit of hesitation. But after he said that, he said they're his last choice. And he told me 
the only guy he's ever hooked up with was 10 years ago. He then mentioned how during the summer he saw a small framed guy um, where he worked and wanted to, and I quote, destroy his ass. And he mentioned how whenever he's with women, he wants anal sex. So I told him after all of this that I had a question and he cut me off and said, don't ask. I asked anyway because I wanted to know if he was into me. And he said no, and that he doesn't hook up with friends because of the drama it causes. So I guess I'm just feeling hurt and upset all of the time because I really like this guy and I want to be happy for him that he was comfortable telling me he's bisexual, particularly because his culture is not one that is especially open to such relations. But at the same time, I don't want to hear about his sex life or possibly just be being used for the attention I give him. So I guess right now I just feel confused, sad, and hurt, and I don't know what his motivations are, and I don't really know what to do. So the thing about this letter is that it's hot, and it's sad. Like, that's definitely right my, it's my brand. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it is hot, it is sad. Sadness. I would also say it's, it's, it's dangerous. Yes. That as well. So you go, you go first. It's second opinion. I'm supposed to, I'm supposed to cool my jets for a minute and sit on my hands or sit on my tongue. Yeah. So, so in fact, this is a situation I have been through almost note for note, um, except for this guy and I actually did start um, touching each other, <laughs> but in this very like broy way where it was like, oh, let's just wrestle, dude. It'll be fine. So we were like jacking each other off, etc. And there's just no happy ending. <laughs> there is no. <laughs> There's, there's like, there's no good way that this really ends, right? It's not like all of a sudden he's going to be like, actually, I changed my mind. Um, why don't we like get together and like date or be fuck buddies? It just doesn't work that way. It's a hopeless situation. The sex is not going to resolve this person's inner conflict. Sex with you. No. And like, and on top of all that, even if this person, I mean, I, from this letter writer, I see someone who's just digging and digging and hoping and waiting for this person to finally return what he's feeling. And it's just not happening on top of everything. You have explicit statement from this guy being like, no, I wouldn't do anything with you. So I think you need to cut your losses and go. Yeah, you need to cut your losses and go. Also, you know, when he says I wouldn't do anything with you, he's lying. That, that, that's my impression. Like, <laughs> the guy keeps saying, you know, I'm going to you know, open your oh, pussy yeah. and like suck my cock and, and, and keeps, you know, taking <laughs> the conversation with this person that he says he's not attracted to and never get with in a sexual uh, direction and an intensely sexual direction. And what he's hoping, yeah. I think, is that you will make a move, caller, and then he can blame you when it's all over and not take any responsibility for his desires and his mm. actions. So that he keeps, I think that's definitely true. He keeps and opening the door think, or opening his legs, hoping you'll walk through, hoping you'll walk in, <laughs> while being while saying, "I don't want you to walk through." Here's this big open door. Here's this big opening. I don't, but I don't want you to walk through it. But here it is again. Here it is again. Here it is again. He's hoping that you call her will go for it, and then he's going to go for it, and then he's going to be angry after he comes. That's my experience with these kind ah. of motherfuckers. That he is welcoming this, opening it up. And then if you go for it, because you're so attracted to him, he's going to be explosively angry after he has his explosive orgasm. And that's why I think yeah, it's dangerous. Multiple liabilities here. And also the giving versus getting that's already in play, regardless of what might happen in the future, he's already getting so much validation out of you. Mm -hmm. Like he's already hearing, oh, I'm so hot. I'm so wanted. This person, I have him sort of around my finger. That's a terrible place to be. No matter what happens next, even if it fulfills your wildest sexual fantasies, it's just not good. It's just not healthy. And like you said, 
after that big sexual fantasy gets fulfilled, who knows what he's going to do? Because I know personally that when I've hooked up with some guys who have been in that same place where they keep flirting with me, keep wanting me to do something, and then I do it, they completely turn that around on me in both either like physical or emotional ways. Yes. I don't think it's, it's a good idea. Yeah. I don't think it's a good idea either. And caller, your time with him is making you unhappy. Mm -hmm. So stop spending time with this guy who's sending you these conflicting messages, making you feel terrible and take it from me and John Paul here. You'll feel worse if this relationship is ever consummated sexually. Like, did I imagine it? Yes. Was I hard? Yes. Is it a good idea? No. Hello, Dan. I'm a 27-year-old gay Indian guy calling from the East Coast. I moved to the U.S. about two years ago, and I'm in a happy monogamous relationship for almost a year with my boyfriend, who is a Taiwanese-American. He's three years younger than me, and we have had a very realistic relationship with our ups and downs, and it has been very satisfying. I came out of an abusive relationship before uh, this one, which was my only other relationship in my life, and the differences are startling. I'm very happy to live with a person who isn't abusive and gives importance to relationships greatly. My question is about cultural differences and how we can work through those challenges. My boyfriend is first-generation U.S. citizen and sometimes has a bit of an identity crisis while describing himself either following the American culture or the Asian-Taiwanese culture. I'm very much rooted in my cultural values and ethos, which I was brought up with with regards to family and all, and uh, in no way do I want to compromise on that. I observe this, and this may be, I may be biased about it, but it's my personal opinion that American culture is a bit individual-centric and, you know, independent. And as people, you know, kind of put it, it's an individual society, whereas the Indian society or the Asian societies in general are more of a collective society where the community is more important than the individual. My boyfriend and I argue sometimes on how to approach family and our relationship. The differences come out quite glaringly. I believe we as a team and a unit part of a bigger unit that is I want uh, both of our families to be involved and have more sort of a tight-knit connection whereas uh, you know we talk about things make collective decisions and sort out things together whereas he believes in a more individual approach for himself and uh, his his personal things comes first so I was asking maybe how we can bridge this gap in our relationship. I know interracial couples have challenges and I assume interracial gay couples have it more because Asian societies have a stigma around homosexuality. So any tips on how to work this out so that we both hold out to our principles and somehow reduce this friction during the arguments. I made my values and expectations very clear to him in the beginning and we both want this to be a long-term monogamous committed partnership that lasts for life. I really don't want our differences to distance us and ultimately causing us a fallout. So, John Paul, community versus individualism. How do you resolve that in a relationship? So, I love these letters that ask me to sort of solve the East versus West divide. <laughs> <laughs> Where it's just sort of like, we come from two distinctly different uh, points of view in the world, different cultures, different identities in terms of how we think community should work. How do I resolve that? And I think the answer is that these things are such deeply core values are so intrinsic to the other person that you either need to make peace with it and just be aware that it's happening Mm -hmm. or it's not going to work. I mean, you have to be able to work around it. You're not going to change fundamentally the way this person views themselves in society. Exactly. That, that, that was my reaction was this is a case where each time 
you have a conflict where this community versus individualism thing rears its head, you're going to have to fashion a compromise for each discrete mm-hmm. episode, but you're never going to resolve it. This is nothing that you can solve where it won't be a problem in the future. This is just going right. to be a constant problem in your relationship. And is you know, putting up with this and having this fight, you know, the same fight really over and over again. Anybody who's in a long, long, long ass term relationship knows that you spend a lot of time having the same fight over and over and over again, because there's no, you know, there's no resolving that underlying issue that leads to that conflict. You just have to agree that we'll have the fight and we'll hash out a compromise and we'll stop wasting our time searching for a resolution. That's not coming. That's not there. Absolutely. It's like, you know, when you go into a new apartment and the windows aren't as big or as plentiful as you'd like them to be, you're not going to change it. You just have to be okay with it. And determining if you're okay with it is going to be key here because you will have this conflict over and over again. I know from personal experience and you're not going to get someone to just be like, okay, suddenly I have gone from an individualistic worldview to a collectivist. I've never seen someone do that. Yeah, but the problem a lot of people have, though, is they think that if we keep having this fight over and over again, there's something wrong with our relationship. And I I think people need to understand that you will have in a long-term relationship the same fight over and over and over again. And it can help to to really tell yourself that and really embrace that. Because if it's a fight that, you know, you can have and that doesn't become toxic or create a high-conflict relationship, it doesn't become physical, doesn't become emotionally abusive, and you can resolve the conflict through, you know, loving each other loudly, as my mother used to say about a shouted argument, <laughs> then your relationship can, can endure this conflict and survive. Yeah. And even thrive. The way I see it is it, it's not like the scale has tipped one way over the other, like, undeniably, it is just a rock on the scale, a weight that you need to put on when you're figuring things out. It doesn't mean that you need to break up. It means you have to make peace with this being a thing that's not going to get reconciled very easily, and you compromise around it. Hey, Dan. I did the thing that you're not supposed to do, and I am a chronic orgasm faker, and I hate it, and I know I shouldn't have started it. But, like... I've only come with a partner like a few times. I'm 22, but now I just feel like I don't know with my current friends with benefits situation. I don't really know how to like own up to this because we've been friends with benefits for like almost over two years now. And part of me feels like maybe I should just not own up to it and just keep faking it. Because I know that this isn't going to be my last sexual relationship of my life. And I'm like, if the sex is good, like, it's not like it's not satisfying. But, like, am I doing a disservice to future partners? I don't know. Um, And the thing is, is, like, I can always make myself come, like, always, um, with my hand or with a vibrator. That's not an issue. But with a partner, like, even with a vibrator, just, like, the presence of another person, I guess, I don't, makes it too too stressful the few times that I have come with a partner it's been with oral sex so and my current fuck buddy doesn't really like to eat pussy so I'm like I feel guilty asking him to do it especially because it would take a long time to get me to come that way and I don't know I just don't know if it should be something that's really important to me like it would be really nice but I it just feels like a weird thing to like bring up at this point in the stage. So maybe I should just like let it go 
and with my next sexual partner, just fresh start, make a vow never to do it again. All right, John Paul, this one is not a question you're going to get at them, but it is a question I get every day. I've been faking the woman. I've been faking orgasms with my male partner. Should I keep faking orgasms with my male partner? What do you have to say? So my opinion is no, (laughs) I don't think you should. But I have a feeling I'm really not a sex person. I so am. This could very well just be. This could just be part of the game. I don't know. I mean, like I have certainly faked orgasms before. I don't know if that's just something that comes with the territory, but it's more difficult. I, wait, wait, wait. I it's would, more difficult for a guy to fake an orgasm because. Oh, absolutely. So, so under what circumstances? I, I, I know what under what circumstances a guy can fake an orgasm, but for those out there listening who can't wrap their heads around it or figure it out, under what circumstances <laughs> have you faked an orgasm? I just have to very discreetly, like, let them not see the evidence that I'm not having one, if that makes any sense. I was going to say, you just don't let them inspect the contents of the condom after you say that you've come. Yeah, exactly. And nobody's really anxious to, like, open up the condom and verify that you came by making sure there's a load in there. If you just, like, take the condom off and walk (laughs) it to the bathroom and wrap it in tissue paper and throw it away, they're not going to dig it out later as a souvenir and then realize that they were duped. That would be a different um, advice question, I think. Um, but but getting back to this expert issue, you know who gets to be a sexpert? Who? Anybody who calls themselves a sexpert. There's no accreditation <laughs> for sexperts out there. So I'm gonna. There's no school. No, there's no school. I'm gonna say you can call yourself a sexpert. You get sex and relationship questions. That's enough. Okay. So as a sexpert, a newly gonged, I gave you the gong. Mm-hmm. Sexpert, what do? What should <laughs> this woman do? What's your opinion? I mean, I think she needs to communicate what she's not getting with her partner. I mean, it must be terrible to be not fully satisfied in all your sexual interactions with this person. So I think you need to be honest and be like, okay, you're not doing this, or I need this, or I need that in order to come. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's tricky to walk it back. When you go to somebody that you've been messing around with for a couple of years, as she has with this friend with benefits and faking orgasms to go to them and say, all those orgasms that I let you think that I was having because I (laughs) performed them, I wasn't having those orgasms. That was a lie. Every time we had sex, I told you a big lie to boost your ego and also to get me off the hook so we could be done. And now I want to like tell you the truth and we have to change the way we're having sex and you're going to have to work harder. You know, a lot of people react negatively to, you know, they feel like, They've been lied to because they were lied to. And you have maybe good reason to lie. And some guys are so manipulative around, you know, wanting the woman to come because it's an ego boost for him. And it's about his pleasure, not about hers. So he doesn't care if it's faked or not. He just wants to hear the caterwauling. So some guys might not react negatively, but some guys are going to be hurt because they feel legitimately misled. But in this case, fuck this guy. He's not eating your pussy. Oh, yeah. We're also like we're we're in an age where like eating ass and eating pussy is just like come on one hundred and one. <laughs> it should come with it, it should be like understood that that's what we're doing out here. Yeah, as I said famously and controversially, oral comes standard. Any model that arrives without oral should be returned immediately to the lot. <laughs> and I say I say that about men and women. That's not something I'm telling women to like suck every dick. I'm telling guys they got to eat every <laughs> pussy too. Well, do you remember? Do you remember DJ Khaled, the response to him saying that he doesn't eat pussy? Yes, that? that was gratifying. Yes, he deserved every bit of that. 
or didn't deserve any bit of it. I don't think he's going to get laid again in the future. Well, you know, he is going to get laid because there right. are women out there like our caller who will put up with this. There's one way that she comes, <laughs> oral sex. She's with a guy. She's been fucking him for two years. He's never once made him made her come. The way that he could make her come, he doesn't want to do, and she'd be too self-conscious asking him to do it because she knows he doesn't like it. Is he the only guy on the planet? Right. You're 22 Hopefully years not. old. <laughs> You're a woman. Go find a guy who eats pussy. They are thick on the ground. And it's not like you have to divorce yeah, the, the, the like, father of like your six children to go find that guy. This is just a friend with benefits. Right. It's like, since the dick economy is not in such a terrible place. <laughs> What's that tweet where it's like, dick is abundant and low value? That's so true. It's one of the truest things I've ever heard. It's like, find one to eat you out. Exactly. Good advice. Find one who will eat you out. That is, that is our lesson for the chronic faker. Okay, John Paul, named for John Paul II, the Pope. John Paul Brammer, where can people find Hola Papi? You can find Hola Papi at them.us or at my Twitter, JP Bramer, B-R-A-M-M-E-R. Thank you so much for coming on Second Opinion. I hope you'll come back sometime just to, to kick around another couple of questions with me. It was really fun I chatting with you. I would love to. Um, and I can't tell you genuinely how much I'm enjoying Ola Papi. I got into this racket because I was a fan of the genre, and your column <laughs> is now uh, up there with my faves. Oh, it means so much coming from you. Thank you so much. Hi, Dan. I am a uh, 26-year-old on the East Coast in a cool little city. I'm a serial monogamist. I've always been in long relationships, and now I'm starting another one. And I'm finding myself uh, struggling with the same question I've always struggled with, which is, am I supposed to disclose to my new partner that I have a really hard time with uh, infidelity? I struggle with it all the time. I've slipped and fallen off that cliff of cheat dumb before, and... I love it every time. I love, you know, new sex and the excitement. And especially now it's springtime. I'm going crazy. And I want to have meaningful relationships with these people that I'm meeting. But I also just want to fuck that bartender across, you know, the counter from me all the time. And I, I wonder if disclosing to these partners that I struggle with this would help, you know, us to work through it together and come up with solutions together. Um, I've been monogamous in the past and I hated it. It felt dirty and awful and I was really bad at following the rules. And so I don't feel like that's a smart way to go about doing things again. But it almost feels like, you know, like telling someone that you're depressed or telling someone that you have herpes or telling someone that, you know, you, you struggle with XYZ. Is, is telling people that you're a cheater a thing? Um, what do I do? Do I just kind of keep doing it because I'm still young and get out of my system or I don't know. What do you think? Why the fuck are you making monogamous commitments serially or otherwise? You are 26 years old. You are a grown ass woman. There is one thing that you know for sure about yourself at this stage of your life. You are incapable of honoring a monogamous commitment, which means you have no business making a monogamous commitment. I believe that you might be making them because you feel that you ought to make them, that a good person makes a monogamous commitment, that this is what will be expected of you by anyone who's interested in you over the long term, not just interested in you bent over the bar at the end of the shift. But if you're a listener to this program, you know that that is not true. You know that there are people out there who are capable of making and want to make long-term commitments but are not interested in monogamy. 
you also know that there are guys out there who are interested in women who are interested in other guys. People into hot wifing, people into cuckolding, people into swinging and other forms of open or polyamorous relationships. All of the things about you that you see right now as a problem to be solved with your next partner are not a problem. You're making them a problem when you make a monogamous commitment that you can't keep. That makes your desire for others, your cheating ways a problem in your relationship because you've made a monogamous commitment. Don't make the fucking monogamous commitment and then it's not a fucking problem. Find a guy who wants to be with a woman who has sex with a lot of guys. They're out there. We're going to get calls from them. You'll hear them in the comments in the next couple of weeks. And this is not a problem. Know thyself, someone said once upon a time. You know thyself. This is an important thing that you've come to realize. Monogamy is not for you. Stop trying to do it. Stop making monogamous commitments. Stop dating guys who want a monogamous relationship. And again, this is not a problem, who you are sexually, who you know yourself to be, what you know you want. It becomes a problem when you try to jam the square peg that is you into the round hole that is monogamy. Stop it. Go find yourself a square hole. Hi, I have a comment for um, one of the callers from episode 620, uh, the guy who was sending question mark messages on Grinder to the guy that wasn't responding to him. I thought that Dan's advice was spot on with the, like, this guy isn't into you, he's wasting your time, move on. Um, I just wanted to add that also, I don't think that it's a good idea to send guys the question mark message, even if they were interested in you. I've had guys where we're talking and I get busy and at work or just whatever with life and don't message for a while. And then they send me this blank question mark message and it, I lose interest. I just like, if they can't handle like a little gap in conversation, then I don't know that I want to hang out with them. I think it's a lot better to send a message that starts conversation again. Like, Hey, how was the rest of your day? Or, you know, what's up? It's Wednesday rather than this like passive aggressive, like you didn't answer my last message. Hey, what's going on, Dan? I'm calling about episode 620 and the woman who called in whose husband keeps initiating foreplay and then kind of stopping in the middle and not having sex and leaving her very frustrated. One of the things that I think you might have overlooked when you were responding is this guy might be impotent or have some sort of ED that kind of kicks in because he's initiating, he's starting foreplay, his dick might not be getting hard, and rather than letting her realize that, he's just stopping altogether because he'd rather just stop than realize that he's not getting hard while he's initiating sex. Obviously, there's a lot of details she kind of left out that you can't answer that for sure, but it's something to consider. Hey, Dan, this is a call about uh, the guy in episode 620 who was cranking up his girlfriend and then telling her he wanted to go to bed. I don't disagree uh, that he's an asshole and should knock this shit off, but I think it's coming from a kinky place instead of uh, him trying to create conflict. Um, My guess is he's trying to get her to beg for sex. Still asshole behavior and he should knock that shit off, but yep, that's my take. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you want to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. Tickets are on sale now for the 14th annual Hump Film Festival. The deadline for submission just passed. We have more submissions this year than to any other Hump before, which means the 14th annual Hump is going to be 
amazing. You can get your tickets for the premiere of the 14th Annual Hump in San Francisco, Seattle, Portland, and Olympia right now at humpfilmfest.com. Follow me on Twitter at Fake Dan Savage. Follow JP Bramer on Twitter at JP Bramer. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at risk youth and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week for another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.